0: welcome to michigan opera theater's opera here podcast this is andrea scoby
1: and arthur white
0: with michigan opera theater
1: we are thrilled you have joined us today as we preview Engelbert humperdinck's greatest operatic success hansel and gretel it has been 30 years since michigan opera theater has produced this opera and on today's podcast we'll tell you the story of hansel and gretel give you a bit about its history And we will be joined by two special guests, including Basil Twist, the director of the stage production, which opens April 6th and runs through April 14th.
0: Before we begin, we want to recognize and extend our appreciation to Jake Neer and WDET for their assistance in producing our Opera Here podcasts.
1: Composer Inglebert Humperdinck wrote Hansel & Gretel based off the brothers' grim fairy tale of the same name, debuting his opera in Weimar two days before Christmas in 1893 with Richard Strauss conducting.
0: Arthur, let's talk about the story of Hansel and Gretel. What is the synopsis of this opera? Where do we begin?
1: Well, the opera opens at the broom maker's home near the forest. Uh, We see immediately the two Hansel and Gretel at home working. Gretel is darning socks and Hansel is binding brooms. But their hunger has distracted them Gretel tells Hansel that there is a jug of milk for which their mother will make a delicious rice pudding that evening. So he is so thrilled to hear about that, they begin to happily dance around the room. Well, the mother comes in seeing them dancing and she is furious uh, because very few socks have been darned and even fewer brooms have been bound. And so she flies into a rage, and accidentally kicks over the jug of milk. She sends him immediately out into the forest to pick uh, strawberries for the evening's dinner.
0: So once the children have left and are in the forest, the mother is alone. She's reflecting on her sorrow. She is a mother who's unable to feed her children, and she prays to God for help. But then the father enters, and he is in a jovial mood, contrasting with her sadness. And he is in a great mood because he sold all of his brooms at a premium price. He enters bearing sausage, cheese, flour, eggs, and coffee, enough for a
2: full feast. <laughs>
0: And he looks around, asking after his children. They're not there. And the mother explains that she sent the children into the forest to collect strawberries. He reminds his wife of the evil gingerbread witch who lives in the forest, luring children with sweets, uh, turning them into gingerbread in order to eat them, and the two frantically rush to the forest trying to rescue their children.
1: Now meanwhile Hansel and Gretel have reached the forest and in short time have filled their basket with strawberries. Now Gretel fashions a crown from some garland she finds and Hansel crowns her queen of the wood. Uh, The two enjoy playing and singing and eating these delicious strawberries uh, but soon they realize it has gotten so dark they are unable to follow the path back home. Uh, They are resigned to spending the rest of the night uh, on the forest floor and they kneel down and say their prayers before bed.
0: up, Hansel and Gretel have had a restful sleep and they see a glorious gingerbread house standing in front of them, decorated with cakes and cookies and licorice. And the two, like like any of us, cannot resist going and trying to uh, nibble on this delicious house made out of all of the sweets that uh, they have dreamed about and that they love. But the door opens and the witch appears, waving her wand and placing a spell on Hansel. She locks him in a cage and uh, is planning to cook him and eat him and orders his sister, orders Gretel, to fetch almonds and raisins to fatten him up for eating. With the witch temporarily distracted, Gretel steals her wand, she breaks the spell, and she sets Hansel free. Then the witch comes back and asks Gretel to look in the oven to see if the gingerbread is done. And Gretel pretends she doesn't know how, she doesn't know what this means, and has the witch show her. And when the witch bends down to peer into the oven, Hansel and Gretel both shove her inside and shut the door. The oven explodes, and all of the gingerbread children come back to life. Hansel and Gretel's mother and father now arrive, and all of them express their gratitude for salvation, and the opera ends happily. Arthur, this opera is composed by Engelbert Humperdinck, but that is not the British pop singer Engelbert Humperdinck. Am I correct?
1: Not at all. As a matter of fact, uh, his real name is Arnold Dorsey. And uh, for a while, uh, because he never actually legally changed his name, the Humperdinck family uh, came after him to change it, and for a while he actually did have to give the surname back. Uh, But the composer, uh, Humperdinck, showed great musical promise even at the early age of seven when he wrote his first composition, Uh, But his family was not supportive of his music whatsoever. But after he won uh, several awards, and particularly the Mendelssohn Award in Berlin, he went to Italy, where he ended up working with Richard Wagner. Uh, And Wagner invited him to join him at Bayreuth, the Bayreuth Festival, in 1882, and he assisted him uh, in writing Parsifal and Götterdammerung. In 1910, Humperdinck premiered the fairy tale Die Kerniskinder. The King's Children at the Metropolitan Opera House in New York with famed singers Geraldine Farrar and Louise Homer. Now in 1890, Humperdinck's sister worked up a version of Hansel & Gretel as a puppet show for her children to perform. She asked her brother to set four songs of it, and Humperdinck was so taken with the project, he eventually developed it into the opera we know today. The opera is admired because Humperdinck used German folk melodies from the southern Alpine region And as a student of Wagner, he infused these simple tunes with such rich and orchestral textures, so much that he has been credited as being the only successful Wagnerian disciple
0: we are so excited to have Hansel and Gretel back in Detroit. I think that our production is going to be just a really interesting kind of nod to the original. You know, Arthur, you mentioned that uh, the composer Humperdinck's sister set this originally as a puppet show for her children. Um, And of course, here at Michigan Opera Theater, this specific production is going to utilize puppetry, uh, both large and small scale. We'll talk about that in a little while, but uh, it kind of brings us full circle a little bit. It
1: certainly does. It certainly does, and I can't wait to see this production.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting. And, you know, one One of the things that I really love about the fact that we're doing opera that's based on a fairy tale, um, there's, you know, the source material is kind of in us. You know, we know that story. It's part of our oral tradition. I mean, you could tell this whole story from memory, but when was the last time you sat down and read Hansel and Gretel? Yes, it's
1: been a long time. It's been a really (laughs) long
0: time, right? Um, So stories like this really do live in our oral history. Um, Stories like Hansel and Gretel and other ballads, prose tales, epics, and songs were all transmitted, um, you know, person to person, story to story, before they were collected in books. And it was really the brothers Grimm who were instrumental in preserving all of these stories. Jakob and Wilhelm Grimm were the oldest in a family of five brothers and one sister, born one year apart in Hanau, Germany. Their father was a lawyer and the town clerk, but his death came when the boys were 10 and 11 years old and brought hardship to the family. But nevertheless, they followed in their father's footsteps and studied law at the University of Marburg, where they met Clemens Brentano, the poet and novelist and dramatist who focused on German folklore and history, and he really inspired a love of folk poetry among the brothers. And years later, um, in 1805, they first began to collect folk songs. They, um, you know, spoke with people in different regions in Germany to collect these kind of oral history tales and began to analyze the differences between folklore and other types of writing. One biographer noted that the brothers felt that folk poetry was the only true poetry, that it expressed the eternal joys and sorrows, the hopes and fears of humankind. Their first collection, Children's and Household Tales, contained stories for both children and adults, including Snow White, Little Red Riding Hood, and Rumpelstiltskin, among over 200 others. And these were stories that had been passed down through the generations and collected for the first time by uh, the two brothers. They didn't originally collect these tales for children to read. They wanted to capture the pure voice of the German people and to preserve and print the poetry of common folk. It was really meant to be a scholarly project to preserve those oral traditions and the cultural viewpoints of the German people. In fact, one critic warned of the tasteless material and urged parents to keep the written volume out of the hands of children. And I think that's really interesting because those tales, Arthur, really were originally much darker than they're commonly known today, right? In Cinderella, for instance, the original, the stepsisters cut off their heels and their toes to try to fit into the slippers. And then later, birds came and plucked out their eyes in punishment.
1: Well, definitely. I think, and even in this story with the Hansel and Gretel, in the original story, it's a stepmother uh, who sends the kids out to the forest because they have too many mouths to feed and they're so poor and they don't have the food, they're sending the kids out to hopefully that they'll get lost and not come back, which is certainly a lot darker. Definitely. uh, This tale of
0: abandonment originally. That's right. right, Instead
1: of being sent out to, you know, get strawberries because now there's no, you know, no meal for the evening
3: supper.
0: Right. So, yeah, a little bit, a little bit different. And I think, you know, after the first printing of the Brothers Grimm's collection, those Kinds of changes began to be seen. Um, They they really downplayed as they edited future volumes some of the sexual innuendo, body humor, some of the violence, and worked to make these tales a little more instructive. And those have really become the tales that we know today. Their collection grew ubiquitous in households throughout Germany, and they became more and more popular with each new edition. And in the twentieth century, the Grimm's Brothers' fairy tales was second only to the Bible as the most popular book in Germany. Mm. So really, just formative in that culture. The Grimm Brothers' work spurred similar collections throughout Europe and formed the basis of the science of folk narrative and folklore that we know today. The two were among the most important German scholars of their time, and to this day the tales remain the earliest scientific collection of folktales.
1: Well, we are delighted to see this folktale come to life here in Detroit once again. You know, 30 years back, in 1989, Michigan Opera Theater mounted its first production of Hansel and Gretel at the Masonic Temple. The Detroit Opera House would still be seven years in the future. Dr. David DiChiara, the founder, chose a local soprano to sing the role of Gretel. She had debuted with the company in the previous decade and had assumed a wide variety of roles in operas from Madama Butterfly, Peter Grimes, Don Giovanni, La Traviata, and La Boheme. As well as operettas, The Student Prince, The Merry Widow, and Gilbert and Sullivan's The Pirates of Penzance and The Mikado. She has continued to perform and is currently the founding director of Motor City Lyric Opera here in town. And it is my pleasure to welcome Mary Callahan Lynch. Thank you so much for being here.
2: I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So I
1: want to take you back uh, to the production 30 years ago. Does anything particularly stand out in your memory about that production?
2: Well, probably the primary thing is the fact that Michigan Opera did it at the Masonic Temple. And, you know, that's a big house. It's a scary house (laughs) because there was 4,000, I think it's 4,000 seat, And um, I remember literally getting down on my knees in the dressing room and saying, okay, please let this voice cut. And uh, thank God it did. But Maestro Mark Flint, who, of course, had such a long history and was so close with Dr. D, Mm -hmm. was a joy. He he conducted it. And then my Hansel, (laughs) Diane Kessling, I will never forget her because she was such a joy to work with. And she was at the Metropolitan Opera, and she had been for a year. She did a lot of Comprimaria roles, and then she covered a lot. Mm-hmm. But she had such nerves of steel, and her whole, like, persona was like, whatever, we can do this. (laughs) And she'd be, right before the curtain would rise, you know, she'd be cracking jokes, and we just had so much fun. And she was from Dayton, and, of course, at that time, Dr. D was the artistic director of Dayton Opera. That's right. And we just had had so much fun. We had way too much fun. I didn't really drink that much, but she enjoyed her beer, and I had a lot of Diet Pepsi. (laughs) Anyhow, we had a lot of fun.
0: That's wonderful. Um, Mary, I kind of have a two-part question for you. Um, I want to ask, how has opera changed in the last 30 years here in Detroit? And going along with that, what do you, how would you characterize the state of opera in Detroit today?
2: Well, we've come a long way, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, of course, thanks to our beloved David DiCara, whose vision was he was a visionary, and and he started out, it was it was lovely, but then it went to grand and tremendous. And, of course, we all know the effect that he had on our city. So the growth, I mean, just think of it. You know, he brought a Pavarotti here. He did the three tenors, and now look where you are now. Look where Michigan Opera Theater is now, and look where are the city of Detroit. And I don't think it's it's coincidental. I think the fact that he believed in our city and we had... He had such a love, obviously, for the arts, but for our city. And look how look how we're in full bloom. It's uh, just exciting, isn't uh, it?
1: Well, you mentioned, Dr. D., you know, it's been actually this month, I six know. months since he lost his battle with cancer. Do you have any other particular memories of him? Oh, my gosh,
2: out? I have so many memories of David. I was doing Do Black patent and Other Shoes Really Reflect Up? It was oh a my. pre-Broadway yeah. <laughs> run. I remember yes. that show. This was at yeah. the Birmingham Theater. And David came and saw me, and I had done some smaller, you know, small roles. As an undergrad, actually, at Marygrove College, I did fashion and Naughty Marietta. And anyhow, he came backstage. I was like, oh, my gosh, Dr. David D. is here. And um, I didn't know he was planning a production of The Mikado and this run was supposed to i mean we did over 100 performances so i had no idea he was there which was probably great and i luckily i had the lead and he said you know mary um i really would love you to do yum yum in our production of uh mikado and honestly as fate would have it i did yum yum more than any other role wow. i did it with glimmer opera i think we did it two or three times here wow. but david you know when you're a young singer i was a I was in awe of him initially, but I just loved him. I became We became very close. And when we brought Giancarlo Manati here to Detroit from Scotland to do our production of *A mall and the Night Visitors, David was so excited and very supportive. And uh, our company gave him the Virtuoso Award. And of course, he'd gotten all these big roles. So I have a big, huge award. So I call him and go, OK, David, I'm just saying, you know, I know you're busy, but we'd really love to give you this award, and it was going to be at the DAC. Mm-hmm. And he said, sure. And I'm so glad we did that. And he he actually mentored me. He inspired me. And, you know, David was a, is obviously a great artistic director and founder. And anyone who knew him, he was a great man. And I just loved him yeah well I want to
0: ask you um to tell us a little bit about Motor City Lyric Opera you are its founding director yes
2: um tell us about your company we formed this company mainly to do the Amal and the Night Visitors then funding became dicey and I thought what can we do in this community and so we said Opera on Wheels okay Motor City Opera on Wheels yeah And we brought operas with a message because a mall was, it isn't giving that you receive. So each one we did, it's probably my Irish Catholic upbringing, 16 years of Catholic education that I really wanted to have something that they were getting a twofer. So the students were not only being introduced to this extraordinary art form, but were also experience a lesson or having something, you know, a multi-layered. We're not like Michigan opera, but we do, um, bring opera to over 10,000 kids each year free of charge. And I think that's the big thing. And our very passionate thing right now right for the past four seasons has been this anti-bullying opera and um, you know how insidious it is. So it's, mm-hmm. it's quite fascinating uh, to see the, to see these young children, as you know, with the uh, MOTs outreach and to be able to um, have hopefully more than just introducing this art form, but to have a, an impact. We have thousands and thousands of letters about. Um, Thank you so much for teaching me not to be a bully. And I really liked how high your voices were.
1: (laughs) Mary, I have to tell you, as M.O.T. approaches its 50th anniversary in just two years, we are filled with nostalgia, as we recall Mm -hmm. these brilliant pages of M.O.T.'s history. And you are part of that history. Thank you so much for being with us today.
0: You are so welcome. We are delighted to welcome a second guest to join us today, Hansel & Gretel's stage director, Basil Twist. Mr. Twist is one of the foremost puppetry artists working today, and his work has been seen on Broadway and beyond. He's a 2015 MacArthur Genius Grant recipient, and we're so happy to have him join us from London, England. Basil, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Hi, it's my pleasure. I'm so excited about this production.
1: Basil, tell us about this unique production. Uh, We know that it debuted about 10 years ago in Houston. How has this piece changed over the years?
3: Oh, well, I don't know if it's changed that much. I mean, it's been asleep for a while, so it's exciting for it to just come back at all. Um, I mean, it happened in Houston, and it also went to the Atlanta Opera not long after, Um, but it's really been kind of waiting to come back. It's one of my biggest, um, most thrilling things I ever did. So I'm over the moon that it's happening again. I guess one major change, though, is we're doing it in German this time because we always did it in English. So I think that'll be interesting. But it should be the same production, big and wild and crazy.
0: (laughs) Wonderful. We're so excited about all of that bigness and wildness. Um, Tell us about the puppets that we'll see on stage. I understand that our fabulous witch was built in collaboration with Jim Henson Studios.
3: Yeah, the previous operas that I had worked on, the singers and the puppets were separate, meaning that the singers provided the voice, but the the singers were sort of to the side, and the puppet took on the physical characteristics. But in this production, I actually wanted to (laughs) actually have the singers have the experience of puppeteering, of being, of actually animating the puppets by using puppetry, sort of augmenting the singer's presence. Um, so that the singers aren't something to the side. They're still central to the theatrical effect I'm putting on. And that is (laughs) not every singer is cut out for that sort of challenge. Um, So the trick was, of course, to find singers who are game and great and also to make sure that it's sort of a costume, it's sort of a puppetized costume that the wig, the, the witch is in, that the performer is in, is comfortable, is lightweight, is easy to get in and out of. And the best people to do that with me were the Jim Henson Company. They're just experts at making sure performers are comfortable on film shoots and television, um, that things are lightweight. And, of course, it was a dream come true for me to work with them because they're the greatest American puppet. Makers for decades, so it was a really thrilling collaboration.
1: As I was going to ask, you said that in this case the singer is a part of the puppetry. Are they? So I understand the witch is a, is a twelve-foot puppet. Is that correct, or is it even taller than that? I think
3: she's more than twelve feet. Actually, she probably gets closer to thirteen or fourteen. What it is is it's a, it is a giant witch. Hansel and Gretel are the only human characters in the show, um, actually played by human beings, and, and, the, um, and the rest of the world around them is either fantastical or oversized to make them look smaller, to make them look like children, because of, of course, it's adults playing the roles. So the witch is the biggest one of all. Basically, the witch is twice as high as a normal person, but plus a little bit more, because the singer is actually the, is in the witch rig from the waist up, and then from the waist down is operated by puppeteers. So it takes the singer and three puppeteers to bring the witch to life. Wow, wow. that's stunning.
1: Is the singer on stilts then? Or how does the, how does the singer get the height? The,
3: the singer is on a rolling platform. Oh, okay. um, it's actually kind of a hydraulic pedestal that goes up and down. Wow. And underneath her skirt is one puppeteer who's rolling it around, one puppeteer who is making it lift up and down to give the sensation of her walking or if she crouches or or bends down, Um, and then the third person is working her her thighs and haunches so that she has an actual real movement to the lower part of her body. And then the singer, his ankles become basically the waist, where the waist of the figure would be, and he has um, these very magnificent oversized arms that actually are in scale with the rest of the body and then wears a big headdress which actually actually creates an even higher and bigger size to make everything the proportions actually work quite well.
1: So Basil the witch uh, puppet is stylized in a very overtly feminine way but it's portrayed by a male singer in this production the wonderful Matthew DeBattista. Uh Can you talk about that contrast for us?
3: I love that this role can be sung by a man. And when I've seen it done before, I've seen it performed by a man, and I loved that. Um, of course, my witch is very, um, very curvy and, and feminine. Um, I come from a tradition of in New York, of uh, nightclubs and sort of, a, of an alternative scene and a lot of um, the drag world. So that this witch is, is um, you know, a sort of provocative and even sexy witch, but with a, a man's voice inside is something that's right in line with the different worlds that have informed my creative aesthetic.
0: That's wonderful. I think that uh, it's going to be surprising and exciting for uh, for all of us to see that. Um, but there are other puppets on stage throughout the piece as well. I know we have the angels, we have the dew fairy. What other elements of puppetry will we see aside from this uh, completely stunning witch, witch puppet?
3: Well, the angels is a big one. I mean, the, that's such a magnificent piece of music. And um, the possibility with puppetry is to do angels that fly and to do that in a way to have you know all of the angels flying um without um you know hooking everybody up in wires and um having a huge safety issue you have you can actually put the angels in the air and i think it makes a really beautiful image and it's a kind of puppetry it's a technique where they're operated from above so like string marionettes that's kind of very traditional style that people know of just on a much bigger scale and um You know, besides the Dewdrop Fairy and the Sandman, there's kind of a way that the show, I would say, for me, I designed also the scenery um, as well as the costumes. So I have a sense of kinetics about the way that the scenery moves and so that the scenery also, to a degree, becomes alive. So most notably, there's a scene where they're lost in the forest and the trees that it's around them become more menacing. Um, This is right before they meet the Sandman and he he puts him to sleep. So the set itself, in my mind, is a puppet because it needs to be animated. It needs to come to life. Um, It needs to move like a puppet. I actually ask a lot of my puppeteers um, that are in moving things like curtains or even flats as they cross the stage to invest them with a soul. So... Even though things are more abstract or not necessarily um, anthropomorphic, to me they still have the sense of puppetry because I'm asking puppeteers to operate them, and, um, and also I kind of try and inspire the technical truth to treat them that way, and that's the way I approach things whenever things are moving on stage is that I consider them alive.
1: Basil Twist, we are excited that you have come and spoken with us today, and we can't wait to see this
3: production. Thank you. It's my privilege. I'm really excited, too.
1: Thank you for listening to our glimpse into Hansel & Gretel. We hope to see you at the Detroit Opera House to catch this beautiful production, opening April 6th and running through April 14th. April 14th is also Family Day at Hansel & Gretel, and we invite young and old alike to come out and enjoy activities with Arts & Scraps, Puppet Art Theater, Tree Dreams Ice Cream, and more.